for us, and when I say us, I'm talking about the church. For us at times, the church, and again, I'm going to be clear, not the building, not the structure that we gather in. For us at times, the church may kind of look run down and dilapidated. But God sees it and He knows that He's building something. Jesus Himself said in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, I will build my church. It's going to happen, folks. Nothing can stop that. From those words, we know that God has something planned for His people. We know that God has something planned for His church. In verse 4 here, beginning the passage we're going to look at today, when Peter says, as you come, the word you there, it needs to be understood as in the plural. As you, together, church, come to Him. When Peter says, as you come to Him, he's not talking here about salvation. Instead, he's talking about something that is ongoing after we come to Christ. The idea is the experience of intimate, ongoing communion with Jesus, drawing near to Him. As you draw near to Christ, as you commune with Him, as you continue coming to Him. As we function as the people of God, as the church, we're to have an ongoing, intimate experience with Christ. As a church, we come to Him and we do so as we've seen earlier, by pursuing holiness in chapter 1, by loving one another, and by longing for the pure spiritual milk of the Word. As you come to Him, Peter says, and I, and I want to put this in there. Excuse me. I'm not overriding the Holy Spirit. That's not what I'm talking about here. We need to put something in there that's not there. Don't, don't go away and say the preacher said we need to add. As you come to Him, and I would say if you are coming to Him. As we come to Him, when we're pursuing Jesus together as a church, Peter tells us something here in this passage. If you're looking at your handout, here's the main idea that we're going to be looking at today. God's people are being built up together to proclaim Jesus to others. God's people are being built up together to proclaim Jesus to others. So if you're looking at your handout, you see in verses 4 and 5 there, we've kind of outlined this in this way. We see the formation of the spiritual life of the church. Peter says in verse 4, as you come to Him, as you're pursuing Him, as you're drawing more near to Him as the people of God, yes, individually, but collectively as a body of believers, as you come to Him, a living stone who was rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. As you come to Him, that phrase there is in the present Tense. In other words, we come to Jesus repeatedly, continuously. Again, I want to make sure we understand this doesn't refer to salvation, but to daily communion, coming to Christ. We must come to Jesus repeatedly and build our lives on Him as individual believers. But more importantly, we must build our lives as a church upon the church's one foundation, and that's Jesus. As you're coming to Him... The idea here is that we will be coming continuously, building our lives and building our church upon the foundation of Christ. In verse 5, Peter will tell us that we the church, I love this, as I studied this passage this week, we as a church are being built up as a spiritual house. The strategy for being built up as a church, Peter says, is what? Coming to Him. That's the strategy for being built up as a spiritual house. We are coming to Him. Jesus is our foundation. As the choir sung this morning, Jesus is what? He's at the center of all we do. 
How are we, as this congregation, Redbud Baptist Church, to be built into a spiritual house? It's by coming to Jesus. Everything focuses on Him. We build everything on Him. Again, the idea is that of a consistent day by day drawing near to Christ. Notice that verse 4 kind of flows out of verse 3, which we looked at last week. It says in verse 4, coming to Him, and that Him is the one whose kindness you have tasted. Remember that from last week? This helps us better understand what coming to Christ means. Verse 3 is a is a motivation there in both directions. It motivates verse 2, longing for the Word, and it motivates verse 4, as you are coming to Him. If you've tasted the kindness of the Lord, and we talked about that being referring to conversion or salvation, if you've tasted the kindness of the Lord, then verse 2, you will long for God the way a baby longs for milk. If you've tasted the kindness of the Lord, then verse 4, coming to Christ will be something that you do. You continually come to Him. You continually pursue Him. If we, this congregation, if we're going to be one of those spiritual houses, now I want to stop here. Uh, When we talk about the church, we mean the universal church. Everyone who's been born again is in the universal church. But the Bible is clear. There are local gatherings, assemblies of people who have been called into the church. And that would be us here If you've tasted the kindness of the Lord, if this congregation is going to be a spiritual house for God's presence, then we must consistently, the Holy Spirit through Peter is saying here, we must consistently day by day, week after week, month after month, year after year, we are to come to who? To Jesus, to the church's one foundation. We must come to Christ repeatedly and we must build our lives and we must build our church on Him. Notice in verse 4 how... Peter refers to Jesus. As you come to Him, He calls Him what? A living stone. This is what we would call an oxymoron. Because we, when we look at a stone, we don't see what? We don't see life. We see a, a dead, whatever rocks they're made out of. That's They're dead. They're not living. To refer to Jesus as a stone means that He's the solid foundation on which we build our lives as the people of God and the foundation on which we build this church. He's the foundation of all that we seek to do in the church. Everything we do must revolve around Jesus and the gospel. What does the word everything mean? It's the opposite of what? Not everything. Everything we do, everything we think about doing must revolve around Jesus and the gospel. The church is to be motivated by the gospel and, and, and seeking to pursue Him. And Jesus is not just any stone. He's a living stone. He, he's living that he, he died for our sins and He was raised from the dead. Triumphed over sin, death, hell, and the grave. That's what it's referring to. Jesus is not a dead stone. He's a living stone. He died, but He rose again the third day. That He is living means that Christianity or the church is not a religion of dead rituals. We are not people who build our lives on dead rituals, but we build our life on the gospel, on Jesus. It's a relationship with the living God. We come to Him and commune with Him daily, building everything in our personal lives, but more importantly, our church is based on who Jesus is. If you've ever wondered what we exist for, this passage tells us we exist to be built up to be a spiritual house for the presence of God in order to reach people for Christ. We exist for no other reason. So here's a point of application I want to make here. If you're not consistently pursuing Jesus and 
particularly in some of the ways Peter's already told us about pursuing holiness and, and loving other believers and, and taking the time to come to Christ in personal devotion, building your life, longing for the Word, then your priorities are wrong. Our priorities are wrong. If those We're not building our life on Christ. If we as a church, the people of God, don't keep God central, continually coming to Jesus and all we do, then our priorities are wrong. In other words, Jesus and His church, in particular His mission for the church, listen, is to be taken seriously. What we are called to do, what, I, what we exist for is a serious business here. We're being built up into this house where God's presence dwells and in which He equips us and sends us out to reach the lost, the nations. Peter continues in verse 4 by saying that Jesus was and is a living stone, but what does it say about that living stone? He was what? Rejected by men. Now we know that Jesus, when we read the New Testament, He was rejected by the Jewish people. But the idea of rejection includes everyone who has ever rejected Jesus. Do you realize even in the Old Testament people rejected Jesus? Even though they didn't know who He was, they rejected the Messiah that God said would come. Jesus was rejected. That word rejected is a very important, it's an interesting word. It means to reject by examining or testing. People look at Jesus, and here's what they say. He doesn't measure up. He's not the Savior we want, so we're going to reject Him. But look again at verse 4. Keep that in mind. We examine Jesus. We look at this Savior, but we say, no, we don't want Him. But look at verse 4. Rejected by men. What's the next word? But in the sight of God chosen and precious. Men look at Jesus and they reject Him. They look at Jesus and they say, no, we're going to look for another way. But in the sight of God, there's something different that's seen, right? God... If we read our Bibles carefully, we know that God requires perfection from us, right? He requires perfection from everyone, right? Just as I am perfect, you be perfect, right? Just as I am holy, you be holy. And we are going, that's not going to happen. God looks at us, and we're not perfect, but yet He demands that. But Jesus comes and lives for us. He dies for us. God demands perfection, and He looks at His Son, and He sees what? He sees that perfection. In Matthew 3.17, God said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Why is God well pleased? Look at verse 4 again. Because in the sight of God, Jesus is what? He's chosen. God determined. He decided. And He did so because He's the Creator. He chooses the means by which He will save the world. God chose His Son, Jesus. Jesus is God's plan, but men do what? They... They reject that plan. Notice something else here. God also views Jesus as precious. This is another very interesting word here. It will become more prominent when we get down to verse 7. He views Jesus as precious. That word precious means to hold in honor. To hold in honor. And it can also mean costly, high-prized, and rare. Though... Jesus is seen by men of no value, not to be held in honor. God has placed honor. He's placed a high price, a high value on Jesus, has He not? But men reject Him. And here's a point of, of applying this to your own life today. If you remember why Peter wrote this letter, he wrote this letter because believers in churches were what? They were under persecution. 
Let me say this. As a believer, you can expect, just like Jesus, who is chosen and precious in God's sight, you also will be rejected at times by men. In particular, if you go to them with the gospel of this precious living stone and you proclaim that message, if they rejected Jesus, guess what they may do to you? They may reject you as well. Peter's telling us that the way to endure rejection by men is to see your identity as the chosen people of God. When people reject you, you've heard this before, right? When they reject you, they're not really rejecting you. Who are they rejecting? They're rejecting the living stone. They're rejecting Jesus. So you can anticipate, you can expect... If they rejected Jesus, they're going to reject us as well. So look at verse 5. He says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Peter draws a comparison here between Jesus as a living stone and believers as living stones with an S on the end. Jesus is the living stone because of He rose from the dead. And just as Jesus was raised from the dead to eternal life, so too when someone comes to faith in Christ, he shares the life of Jesus. What does Peter say we once were? We once were in darkness, but now we are in the light. To be living stones means that believers have the eternal life of Christ. Life comes with contact with the stone. And that is Jesus. Notice also that these living stones are not, they're not lying around unused. God has a, has a design for these stones. Notice there in verse 5, it says, together with other living stones. What, what are we, what's happening to us? What's happening to us, church? We're being built up as a spiritual house. Now this word house, when Peter's original readers would have heard this, it's kind of like the, uh, the, the Doberman Pinscher, right? What's the Doberman Pinscher do when he sees something? His ears what? Stand up, right? When they heard this word, they, it would have been very attractive to them because the word house was pointed them back to the temple in Jerusalem. And in the Old Testament, that physical building was representative of what? God's presence. And they, when they heard that word, they automatically knew God's presence. So they're going, we're being built up as what? As a place where God will dwell. We are a place. Peter's encouraging believers and he's encouraging us today to recognize themselves as living stones. We're not the temple, but we are the church. Here's what needs to grip our minds this morning. Church, you are the representative of God's presence in this world. Does it impact how we act and how we function as a body of believers? We are God's representative. We are the representative of God's presence in this world. But notice that the house is a spiritual house. The church isn't a building. The church is what? People. Christians are joined together spiritually. We have in common a spiritual birth. Our faith in Jesus is our common bond. And as much as I love the building, this building is not what we have in common that it puts us together as the people of God. It's the fact that we know Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. Because guess what? If the building fell down today, we'd still be the church, right? Redbud would not 
going to, we will not become distinct because we don't have a building. It's the people of God. And we're being built up into this house. And let me say this as a means of application based on what Peter's saying there. There ought not be such a thing as a believer just attending church. We don't go to church. We are the church. You've heard me say this before. When somebody asks me, maybe in a conversation, where will you be going tomorrow? I don't say I'm going to church. You know what I tell them? I'm going to worship with the people of God. Well, you're going to church. No, I'm going to worship with the people of God. We are gathering for worship. There ought not to be no such thing as just attending church. Thus, that tells us that we're here for a reason. We're here to minister to one another. At Rebbe, God is in the process of building us up. And that's done partly by us ministering to one another. I want you to understand something. It's a mistake to think of ministry only in formal terms. Sometimes we do that. We think of ministry only in formal terms. Teaching Sunday school or serving on a community. Now, these are ministries. Don't get me wrong. But listen. Ministry is the overflow of a life that's full of Jesus. You want to know what ministry is? It's a life that overflows because it's full of Jesus and it overflows toward other people. That's ministry. Ministry is the overflow of a life that's full of Jesus. If He is central in your life, that means He's priority number one, then you'll be ministering to people when you have contact with them. And ministry takes place through relationships. And for that reason, we should gather as believers who are looking to build one another up. Here's the question I have for you. Is that why we came today? Did we come here to minister to one another, to let Jesus in us, hopefully full, overflow into ministering to others? By the way, that's what Hebrews chapter 10 tells us, that we don't forsake the sin in ourselves together, but we gather to what? To edify and build one another up. Verse 5, notice there he says that we're a, a holy priesthood. In other words, we're not merely the inactive building where God dwells. We're also active participants when it comes to, to worship. Not just participants, but a special kind of participant. We are priests. Listen, I bet you didn't know this about yourself. If you know Jesus, you are a priest. Not a Catholic priest. But you are a priest. All believers, not just me the pastor, are priests of this spiritual house. That's being built up. That makes a big difference, does it not? If everyone who's a believer, who's part of this assembly, part of this congregation is a priest, then you have a part in being the church being built up. Peter says as priest, notice what he says we're to do. We're to offer up spiritual sacrifices. Now your handout has some uh, scripture references there that give you some idea, not exhaustive of what these spiritual sacrifices might look like. Romans chapter 12 verse 1 tells us that we're to give our bodies as living sacrifices. Everything you do, listen to me carefully, everything you do with your body is to be done as an act of worship. Everything. 1 Corinthians 10 31, I didn't give you this one, says whatever you do with your body, you do it to the glory of God. Hebrews 13.5 says that the praise of our lips is sacrifice. 
The spiritual sacrifices are the praises and thanksgiving in God's people individually and in corporate worship. Hebrews 13, 16 says the good works we do for others is a sacrifice. Philippians 4, 18 speaks of the giving of monetary possessions as a sacrifice. In the conversation this morning, we were looking at the board and somebody made the comment, man, somebody gave some money, didn't they? There was a sacrifice on your part today in giving. Revelations 8.3 says that prayer is a sweet-smelling sacrifice to God. And Peter ends verse 5 with these words, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus or for Jesus. Sacrifices through or for Jesus are the only sacrifices, what's the word? Acceptable to God. None other sacrifice, unless it's for Jesus, is acceptable. Let me help you apply that. Your giving, your teaching, your witnessing, your helping others, your praying, your singing, choir, those who sing solos, those who stand in the congregation when we are singing. You're working in the nursery. You're teaching children. If not done for Jesus, it may be a sacrifice to you, but they're not sacrifices acceptable to God. God knows the heart behind the sacrifice. Now let me ask you a question. Right now in this worship service, are you ready? Is your listening a spiritual sacrifice? Was your singing a spiritual sacrifice? Was your praying a spiritual sacrifice? Was your giving a spiritual sacrifice? If only done for Jesus, was it a spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God? Verses 6 through 8. The affirmation of the church's foundation. In verse 6, Peter's quoting Isaiah 28, verse 16. He says, Behold, I am laying. You know what that tells me? That's God's plan. God's laying the foundation. I am laying in Zion. Zion's a word for Jerusalem. A stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. Jesus is referred to as the cornerstone. Most of you who have... And again, this is an area where I'm extremely ignorant. A nail and a hammer... I see them, I know what they're for, but that's about the extent of it. I, you know, after that, it's my thumb more than the nail that gets, that gets hit. The cornerstone controls the design of the building and it holds that structure together. If the first stone to be laid is off, then what's going to happen to the rest of the building? It will be off as well. All other stones are placed based on that stone. That stone establishes the exact order of the entire building. In order for the building to be perfect, the cornerstone has to be what? Perfect. The only one who can ensure the precise building of God's spiritual house, the church, is Jesus. Here's Peter's point. If you trust in Jesus, God's chosen precious cornerstone, notice what he says, you will not be put to shame. Some of you have translations that say disappointed. Put to shame has the idea of being deceived in your hope. 
being deceived in your hope. Those who believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior will never, listen to me church, will never have a loss of hope. Never. The stone will not prove faulty. If you build your life on this stone, your life will not fall apart when hard times come. And if you stand on the stone, the truth of the stone, and unite with others in the the spiritual house on the stone, then the church will never have a loss of hope. Do you hear what I said? If we build on Jesus, we will never have a loss of hope. It doesn't matter what the Supreme Court of the United States may think and what they may pass. If we're building on Jesus, we can never lose our hope. Verse 7, So the honor is for you who believe. Uh, The ESV translates from the Greek that uses the word honor. A lot of you have translations that don't use the word honor. But that word honor has the same meaning as precious in verse 4. This honor, this preciousness, if you will, is for you who what? Believe. In other words, this precious, held in honor cornerstone, Jesus, is only for those who what? Believe. If you believe on this stone, if you trust Him, and rest your future on Him, then He is precious. Because you will never be put to shame, you'll never be disappointed. Jesus will never let you down. Others may let you down, but Jesus will never let you down. Now listen... That doesn't mean as a Christian life is going to be a bed of roses, right? If you're a believer this morning and you've been saved for any period of time, you know that's not the case. But notice also in verse 7, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Peter's saying that not believing in Jesus is rejecting of the stone that God has laid as the foundation. God sends His Son... But some don't believe. They reject Him. The point is, if you believe on the stone, you can't lose. But if you disbelieve, you can't win. God's plan is for Jesus to be the cornerstone. You can reject Him, mock Him, deny Him, but that will never stop Jesus from being what God designed Him to be. And that's Lord and Savior of the world. Verse 8, Peter quotes from Isaiah chapter 8. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the Word as they were destined to do. It says there, a stone of stumbling. It has the idea of something that causes one to trip and fall. That's pretty pretty easy to figure out, right? A rock of stumbling was something that I would trip over. It would cause me to fall. But that rock of offense there refers to... uh, a rock bed that one would be crushed on after they fell over that stone. So in other words, you trip over the stone and you're crushed by what's underneath that and then the stone comes on top of you. People examine the stone and here's what this verse is telling us. They examine Jesus, they look at Him and say no and they throw Him away. But later on, what do they do? They trip over Him and they fall and they are crushed in judgment by that stone. You reject Jesus, there will come a time where you will stumble, you will fall over Him, and He will crush you in judgment because of your rejection. Notice verse 8, why they stumble is because they disobey the Word as they were destined to do. Those who reject Jesus, those who hear the Gospel, those who disobey the Word, stumble and they suffer the judgment of God. That's pretty clear, is it not? You reject Jesus... You are a sure candidate for the judgment of God. 
Notice it says they stumble because they disobey the word. Notice this, as they were destined to do. Some of you may have translations that say appointed. To this stumbling, to this rejection, listen, they were destined to that. They were destined, they were appointed to that. I want to quote someone to help us better understand what's being said here. Because, which most commentators and most people who preach could do it far better than I could anyway, but I'm going to quote John Piper this morning as he talks about this particular aspect. In other words, if any proud unbeliever should boast and say, I have chosen my own destiny, my own disobedience, and my own stumbling, to show God that I have the final and ultimate say in my life, I have the power of ultimate self-determination, and I can frustrate the purposes of God with my own self-determining will. If anyone boasts in that way, Peter responds with the awesome words, No, you can't. You only think you can. But you will discover sooner or later that whatever you choose, and mark this, your choice is real and crucial. Whatever you choose unto this, you were destined. Here's the point. God and not man will have the last say. No mere man can thwart the purposes of God, not belief or unbelief. Quickly, verses 9 and 10. The obligation of the people of God. We're being built up, right? We're coming to Jesus. He is our foundation. Everything revolves around Him. We're being built up and now the obligation of the people of God. But you, believers, church, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. This is who you are if you're a Christian. This is who we are as a church. Peter says both the individual and the church are a what? You are a chosen race. You know what this speaks of? It's God's grace. God chose you, not because of your race or any other qualification. And by the way, when we see this word race here, we shouldn't think black, white, red, yellow. There's only one race. Listen to me. And it's the what? The human race. You didn't earn this, or you didn't meet any conditions. It happened before you were born. And the chosen race, as I've already said, is not black or white, red or yellow or brown. The chosen race is new people from all the peoples, from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Jesus loves the little children of the world, right? Red, yellow, black, and white. They are what? In His sight. You're also a royal priesthood. This idea here behind this is that you have immediate access to God. You don't need anyone else to be your mediator. God Himself provided the mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. Look also there, you're a holy nation. You're not part of the world anymore. You're set apart for God. You exist for God. And since God is holy, you are to be what, church? What are we to be? Holy. If you don't act in a holy way, you act out of the character of God. You contradict the basic nature of a Christian. Now, I think we've learned from 1 John, right? We're called to be holy, but we're, we're, we're what? We're sinners and we're going to sin, right? That's not the point. That we are going to sin at times, but God calls us to be a holy people. But the last thing here, well not the last thing, but 
and who we are. You are God's possession. This is real. I remember my little brother when we were growing up. He always, when something was real good, he would say, this is gooder. This is gooder right here. You are God's possession. It's expressed twice. Verse 9, verse 10. Verse 9 says, a people for his own possession. And then verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Why are we God's possession? It's because of one thing, mercy. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received it. This word possession is a real interesting word. In particular, the words God's people is that you are God's inheritance. You are God's special people. You are the ones that He intends to spend eternity with. That's what that means. You are a special possession because of your faith and hope in Jesus. You are His special people. You are the ones, church, believers in Jesus, that God intends to spend eternity with. Go back to verse 9. Verse 9 tells you, tells us, that you got this identity because God called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. The way we received our identity is that God called us. We became His possessions, His people, because He called us. We got this identity because God gave it to us. Now, what are you here for, believer? What are we, the church, here for? Why do we exist? Look, you are a people of His own possession. What's the next word? That you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. God called us as His people to do what? Proclaim. God made us who we are so we could make known who He is. Our identity is for the sake of making known His identity. The meaning of our identity is that the excellence of God would be seen in us. Excellence here refers to God's gracious dealings. It refers to His mercy. And for that reason, a Christian, in particular, the church, being a part of the church and making the greatness of God known are identical. They go together. We can do it in church gatherings with teaching and preaching and singing and praying. Let me say this. For that reason, what we do here is extremely important, right? If our teaching and if our singing and our praying is to display God, then we better do those things right. If we not, we better do them with excellence. We better do them the best we can. We better be thinking about what we are doing. We can do it one-on-one as we tell each other what God is like to us. You know, nothing thrills my heart more than to talk to another believer. I was on a treadmill at the gym the other day and the guy next to me was a believer and I asked him a question and for the next 15 minutes he told me how good God was. Sweat rolling off of He was telling me how good God was. And guess what? There was two other people behind us on the treadmill listening. We can do it at work or at school as we tell people how great Jesus is. 
Your goal, your purpose is to proclaim Him. There's a responsibility for those who are the people of God. If you profess to be a Christian, you have an obligation to declare the amazing grace of God to those around you. Now listen, will the message be received 100% of the time? No. But the responsibility is still there. The Bible never says, if somebody rejects, it's over with. You go about your business. But here's the question I have for you. Individually as a church, do you or do we carry out a responsibility to proclaim the message? Do we do that? Do you proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into the light? Do you hear that? You were dead in the pit, covered up, dead in the grave, and God called you out of that into the marvelous light. Is there a better story to tell people than what God has done for you? I want to ask each of you this morning to examine your priorities. First and foremost, here's what I want to ask you. Have you believed in Jesus as Lord and Savior this morning? Is He and His death on the cross something you have put your faith in? If you've done that, then Jesus is the center of your life. Remember the choir this morning? If that's what you've done, He's the center of your life. He should be the center of your life. But some of you here this morning don't know Christ. Some of you reject Him. And as Peter said, that stone will crush you one day unless you turn to Jesus. Second, are you coming continually, I'm talking to believers, to Jesus and building your life on Him? Are you offering your life as a spiritual sacrifice to Him? Jesus, here's my life. Here is my life, Jesus. I'm offering it for you. Third, are you seeking to be built together with His people or do you just attend church? See, being a member of the church was never designed just to show up. It was designed to be a part of a house that's being built up to minister to one another so we can do what? Proclaim Jesus to the world. Fourth, are you seeking to proclaim His excellencies to people in darkness? Are you doing that? That they may what? Come out of the darkness into the light. Those are our priorities as God's people who have received mercy. Let's pray.